0: So Mark chapter 9, verse 14 through 32, page 1,000 in a Pew Bible, you're in good shape. Uh, I read an article a few years ago about a man named Manish Sethi. He was a freelance writer and he was troubled by his tendency to goof off instead of doing his work. And he found that social media was the main culprit. He would be typing, and then he would stop and he would get online. He did a little study of his internet usage to see how productive he was, and he found that he was only using 35 to 40% of his time for productive work purposes. The rest of it was just lost in social media and other things. So he did what any rational human being would do. Uh, He put an ad on Craigslist, and he hired a woman to sit next to him when he was working, and to slap him whenever he got off base. So he does this little experiment and he found it was amazing the kind of motivator that getting smacked in the face was. Uh, his productivity skyrocketed to over 90%. He wrote better and accomplished more than, than he had previously. Uh, and so, as a side note, I'm available for hire If any of you would like to achieve great heights, uh, I'll be glad to give some assistance. Uh, He needed help. The reality is we all need help sometimes. Everyone does. And I'm the worst at asking for help. I don't like it. I feel like I'm wasting someone else's time. It it feels like I should be able to figure out the thing on my own. Uh, Quite honestly, it feels a little less manly to ask for help. And so I'd rather do the thing wrong for hours on end sometimes than do the smart thing. Uh, which is also decidedly unmanly, and uh, ask someone for help. Uh, But the reality is no one is truly self-sufficient. We all need help on our side, and that's especially true when it comes to matters of faith. When I talk about faith this morning, here's what I'm talking about. Faith is uh, made up of two parts. Faith is, uh, one, it is that intellectual assent. It's those things that we believe to be true with our minds, things that are true about Jesus in particular. And faith is also those, that heart-level trust in what we have said we believe about Jesus. So it's not just being able to answer questions on a quiz about Jesus, not just getting theological ducks right in a row, although that is important. We have to believe certain things. We also have to trust those things. We have to trust what we know about Jesus. That's what faith is. And the Bible has a whole lot to say about faith, of course. It says that this kind of faith is necessary if we are going to please God. It also says that this kind of faith is necessary if we're going to be saved from our sin and be given eternal life by Jesus. And the reality is this, Christians and non-Christians alike often struggle to believe. This is true for every person. Faith does not come easy. Faith does not land once and for all. There's an ebb and flow as we go through struggles and difficulties, as we face sin and go through all kinds of different situations. But here's the good news. There is help for our unbelief. Curiously enough, the help for our unbelief comes from The one in whom we're supposed to believe, it comes from Jesus Himself. And in the passage we're going to study today, we're going to see Jesus surrounded by doubters, non-believers, those who are struggling to believe. And with what you know about Jesus, how would you expect Jesus to react to this crowd? Up to this point, Jesus has left no doubt as to who he truly is. And the things he's done and the things he's taught have been kingdom things, God things. And yet here again, Jesus is surrounded, even including his own disciples, by people who struggle with faith. How would you expect Jesus to respond to these people? Now, you've got to be careful with how you answer because how you presume Jesus to respond to these doubters would also have to include yourself. How would Jesus respond to me in my doubt and in my unbelief and in my struggles? Well, here's what we'll find today Jesus responds with grace and patience and a miracle and help. It's help for these people in Mark chapter 9, it's help for you and I here this morning. My goal today is simply this. My goal is for your faith in Jesus to move in a positive direction. Regardless of where you are on the spectrum of faith, my my hope is that what we see of Jesus and learn about Jesus in our passage today will move us to purer faith, better faith, stronger faith, truer belief in Him. I think if we studied this passage right from Mark 9, then those things will be true of us. Our faith will move in tangible ways towards Jesus Christ. So what I want to show you in our passage are three realities in our struggle for faith. It's a struggle for everyone. Here's some things that you need to know about that struggle. So remember where we left off last week, if you were with us in chapter 9. Last week, Jesus took three of his disciples up onto a mountain And had this incredible experience that we call the transfiguration. At the transfiguration, Jesus has his divinity revealed. He doesn't receive his divinity. It's not as if it's given to him then. But in this act of grace for disciples who struggle with faith, the true identity of Jesus is revealed in part for them to see with their own eyes, for them to experience, and for them to hear with their own ears. This incredible mountaintop experience, and now we pick up with Jesus and these, these three disciples coming down from the mountain and stepping into chaos. Follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. It says, When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, Take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise again. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. So, here's what we're looking at in this passage today three realities of our struggle for faith. On the other side of this, you and I should struggle much less to believe in Jesus Christ. What are those three realities? in a struggle for faith. The first, if you're taking notes, is this. Here's the first reality. Faith is attacked by evil. Something you've got to know about your faith, a battle that every person faces, is the battle that is inflicted by evil, and namely by our enemy, Satan. There are some disturbing details in this story, and uh, especially regarding the boy and his suffering. And Mark, ever the vivid storyteller, quickly helps us feel the anguish of the father. Uh, the struggles of this child are described three different times in this brief passage. In verses 17 and 18, the father describes uh, what happens to the boy. Verse 18, he's been, or he's been robbed of speech. He, when it seizes him, the spirit throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, becomes rigid. Verses 21 and 22, Jesus again, or excuse me, the father again describes the way the boy struggles with this spirit. Verse 26, when Jesus commands the spirit to leave, the spirit convulses the boy violently before coming out of him. It's awful. The boy is tormented continually and the father is in anguish. What are we to do with this? We've had to wrestle with this question several times through our study of Mark's gospel. What do we do when we get to these scenes of spiritual activity that don't set or don't seem to jive really well with kind of how we think about these spiritual matters? Well, this scene speaks to us about the reality of evil in two different ways, a general way and a specific way. So, in general... You and I can all understand what it's like to go through hardship and suffering. This father and his boy are going through hardship and suffering. It's inflicted by evil, but still we can see a small reflection of ourselves in that the reality, the norm for all people is hardship. Suffering is not abnormal to the human experience. Suffering is common to every person that walks on this planet. Now, to be sure, we have times of joy and happiness. Not every day is unrelenting hardship. For example, the great difficulty I faced yesterday was attempting to move after eating too much brisket. It was harder than you might realize. The brisket was far yummier and juicier. My meat tank was filled to overflowing, and I had to wear the stretchy pants. It was a hard scene. So, that was my hardship yesterday. Not every day is just brutal and difficult. But the reality is that there, there are times when trouble takes the reins. And it doesn't matter how powerful you are, how wealthy you are, how popular you are. No one is exempt from this reality. No celebrity, no politician, no power player. Everyone is susceptible to this. Suffering is the norm. And it's important that you get this because you need to see yourself in this story, and it's possible for all of us in a general sense to see ourselves in the suffering of this father and his son. So this scene speaks to us about the reality of evil and its effects on us in a general way, but but that's not all. Second, this story It teaches us about the reality of evil in a very specific way. I'd say this is its primary purpose. You see, the suffering of the father and the son is not a metaphor. It's not a symbol for all human suffering. The son's suffering is quite specific. He is under spiritual attack. So we've got to ask ourselves the question, what do we do with this depiction here of the boy and his suffering? You might say, ah, that's tough for me to get on board with and to really believe. You might even say this, look, I, just, I don't, just don't think it's literal or accurate. It seems from the description of the boy's symptoms that he's dealing with epilepsy, not an evil spirit. And it, it seems, you know, most likely that first century people probably attributed natural things that they didn't understand to spiritual forces, So they saw the boy sick and convulsing and they just assumed, ah, it must be an evil spirit in him when in reality he just, he needed some medication, some treatment, whatnot. So you would say, this this is not really a story about spiritual activity. It's just about epilepsy. They just didn't know any better. But what if it is actually demonic activity and you're the one who doesn't know any better? It's a logical fallacy for you and I to assume that we have more information today than they did in their day about this specific situation. It's not fair for us logically to say, I've got an accurate diagnosis and all I've done is read a few lines. What if there is a spiritual world that you deny and you push back against and you're the one who's getting it wrong the entire time? You see, Jesus and the disciples, and all the people present, and the writer of this gospel, Mark, they all believed literally that there's a spiritual attack happening on this child. And Jesus treats illness and spiritual attack in different ways in his ministry. So take, for example, in Mark chapter 2, when Jesus heals the man who is paralyzed, he did not say to the man, Demon of paralysis, I rebuke you, leave this man. And the guy got up and walked out. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, rise, take up your mat, and walk. So Jesus treats spiritual things in a spiritual way. He treats physical things in a physical way. He heals, he casts out. Jesus sees a difference between the two. He doesn't attribute every physical ailment to demonic activity or spiritual attack. That distinction ought to be believed here in this story, that Jesus, the trustworthy one, sees a spiritual attack and he acts on behalf of the boy. So we take this story to be an accurate description of the boy's condition. Yes, he had epileptic type symptoms, but that was caused by this spiritual attack he was enduring. And so since Jesus and all the others in the story take this literal, I think you and I must do so also. Because if we deny the influence of Satan in this story, it's likely that we also deny the influence of Satan in our own lives. That is a deadly mistake. You see, we experience evil in a specific way. Evil acts against us. It acts against our faith. It it is not interested in your well-being or your prosperity or your spiritual success. It wants to destroy you. It wants to destroy your faith. And we can do nothing in and of ourselves to change this. The father is powerless in the story. The boy is powerless in the story. If it's not for the intervention of Jesus Christ, the evil spirit gets its way and accomplishes its wicked agenda. It's awful. Again, you can push back. You can say, Cody, um, surely you don't think That our children today are are vulnerable to something similar. Doesn't that seem a little extreme or a little outside of our doctrinal tradition? Jesus describes Satan this way in John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. He does not play by your rules. He does not share your morals. He is not interested in your boundaries. He doesn't care about your arguments. He cares about your utter destruction. He doesn't come to negotiate. He doesn't come to agree on terms of warfare. He does not ask permission before he devours. He just does it. I don't want to live my life willfully blind to the realities Of all the ways Satan schemes against me and my family, and neither should you. We're in real spiritual warfare. And in this story, the first thing you and I learn is that our faith is under attack by a very real enemy. He doesn't need you to agree. He doesn't need you to admit that this is true for him to be effective in his work. But he is horrifyingly effective for those who do not walk with Jesus in faith. It's a real enemy in the story. It's your enemy. There's another struggle for faith in this story. It's not just a struggle of the enemy on the attack. Here's the second struggle. uh, Reality that we need to realize is that faith is hindered by doubt. Our faith is under attack by an enemy. Second, our faith is hindered by doubt. Now, when Jesus comes down the mountain, what he finds is he finds the disciples in a conflict. Uh, And there are teachers of the law there, these religious professionals, who get just a brief mention. They seem to be on the attack against the disciples. The father of the boy is also uh, in disagreement with the disciples. It would seem that they had attempted to deliver the boy from this spiritual attack, and they failed miserably. And so now the disciples are taking heat about this. And then the father explains the situation to Jesus and I love Jesus response in verse 19 he says oh unbelieving generation how long shall i stay with you how long shall i put up with you and here's this very real moment very transparent moment from Jesus the frustration he feels at the unbelief that he's surrounded with even unbelief from his own disciples and so he asks the rhetorical question how long shall i put up with you And then his next line is a statement of grace. Bring the boy to me. He doesn't say, get out of my face, leave me alone. I got other things to do or better people to hang with. He says, I'll succeed where everyone else has failed. I find it interesting also that Jesus' first response isn't to the boy's condition. He responds first to the faithlessness that he's surrounded by. Right? He, he doesn't hear that this boy's under spiritual attack and they say, Oh, sound the alarm. Get everyone together. Oh, we gotta do that's not how Jesus reacts. He speaks first to the presence, the prevailing presence of unbelief, which otherwise would have solved this boy's issue. Everyone in the story fails the faith test. Everyone. The disciples fell the faith test in, again, a similar spectacular fashion. We know they fell the faith test because they were unable to cast out this demon. In verse 28, a little later in the passage, the disciples, after Jesus has delivered the boy, the disciples asked Jesus, hey, why couldn't we drive it out? In verse 29, Jesus replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. So the disciples have a failure of faith, but here Jesus says this kind only comes out by prayer. You might say, ha-ha, Busby, gotcha. It's about prayer, not faith, and I would say uh, it's, it's about both because the prayer that is powerful and effective is the prayer that is rooted in a sincere and deep faith relationship with our Lord. Prayer is not powerful because of a formula, because of magic phrases, because we say things a certain way or stand on our left foot and hop up and down, and then that obligates God to act. Prayer is powerful and effective because we are people who believe in the one to whom we pray. And when we pray in faith, the effectiveness of that prayer is not seen in that we bend God to our will but the prayer of faith is effective because it bends the prayer person to God's will. Faith doesn't change God's mind in our prayer. Faith changes our minds. Faith opens our eyes. The prayer of faith gives us trust in God who has charted our course and has everything laid out according to His perfect sovereign will. The prayer of faith is powerful and effective because it changes me It makes me more like God when I trust Him, I believe Him, even when I don't have the answers. Uh, This past year, last year, we studied the book of James, and in one of those very first sermons, James chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, James talks about the absolute necessity of faith in prayer. He says, the person who prays and does not believe, they don't receive anything from the Lord. So again, it's not just mere words or a lot of words or prayer formulas that obligate God to act. What moves God and moves us is a prayer offered in faith. This is where the disciples obviously failed. They fail to believe. They've had success at this work before, a lot of success in fact. And there's no doubt in my mind that they prayed in an effort to win this spiritual battle in the life of this boy. But they fail because perhaps their trust was in the formula. Their trust was just in the the raw words, void of faith and trust in God. Maybe their prayer fails because they are afraid. They see the teachers of the law. They see this boy who is uh, just in absolute torment. And in that moment, perhaps they doubt in the power of God to actually deliver this boy Whatever the issue is, theirs is a failure of faith. I think also it's important to note that the disciples' failure of faith has a blast radius around them also. When the Father asks Jesus, when he says to Jesus, if you can, have mercy on us, that's a statement of profound unbelief, if you can, and that is informed by the disciples' failure to believe. Their failure is seen in the Father's doubt in Jesus. When God's people fail in our faith, so many around us are damaged also. What's more, the name of Jesus himself is marred by our sin. You know, it's a sadly familiar story that says this, uh, I was hurt by people who called themselves Christian, I was hurt by the church, and that's why I have nothing to do with it today. Those hurts are real, and they are deep. Those hurts are Protestant and Catholic, and so Christians, be careful with your words and your actions. Be vigilant against the kind of sin that would bring shame to the name of Jesus and would give people a reason to leave the faith. And Christian, if you have a friend who's been wounded by the church, be gentle with them. They need to receive from you humility and grace and patience and love. They need to see Jesus in you for a very long time. Perhaps some of you carry wounds inflicted by the church or by people who called themselves Christians, maybe by people who called themselves pastor, maybe by people who called themselves priest, your hurt is not fair. and Your anger is justified. Let me encourage you not to let these ugly acts perpetrated against you to repel you from the beauty of Jesus who loves you, laid down His life for you. I encourage you as gently as I can, don't let these acts lead you to run away from Jesus, but rather to run towards Him. Where people have failed and you have suffered, let Jesus be your healer. He's the one that loves you and knows you. So the disciples fail the faith test, and then the father of the boy also fails a faith test. Look at verse 21. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? And the father answers, from childhood. Verse 22, it's often thrown him into fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. So the father asks the question, if you can do anything, Well, there's no amount of certainty in that statement. He, he's not believing Jesus can do anything. The damage done by the disciples is seen as, seen in this father's doubt, and so he questions the ability of Jesus to do the thing, to deliver the boy. Have you ever prayed like that? Have you ever prayed, Jesus, help me if you can? We're probably way too familiar with that script. It often comes when we're at the end of ourselves and we're at the end of our resources. We've tried everything we know to do, and finally we just give in and pray. Well, there's nothing left to do but pray. <laughs> but instead of praying at the end of our efforts, Jesus Help me if you can. What if we prayed before we exerted any effort, Jesus, do what only you can. That's the prayer of faith. That's trusting Jesus. Not doing all you can and then bringing in Jesus to fill in the gaps. It's just letting Jesus take the lead. You following close behind Him. Jesus responds to the Father Everything is possible for him who believes. That's how he responds to this, Dad. That's how he responds to you and I when we come to him with doubt and disbelief. Everything is possible for him who believes. Jesus is walking this Father towards faith. He doesn't rebuke him outright for this expression of disbelief, but Jesus is bringing him along. Everything's possible. He responds to the doubt with a statement that's true, a strong statement of all the possibilities of faith. And then in verse 24, the father exclaims, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. It's such a true statement, such an accurate read of the human experience. Belief and unbelief are frequently two sides of the same coin for all kinds of people with all kinds of religious backgrounds and experiences. I wonder if those words have ever come from your mouth before or from your heart. Even if you are a follower of Jesus, it's probably very likely that at some point you have wrestled with unbelief, you've struggled with doubt. Well, the truth is the presence of faith doesn't eradicate all doubt. We have the New Testament to testify to this. We have the Old Testament to help us to see how God's people have always struggled to believe. So if you find yourself believing and doubting all at the same time, look, do not despair. Don't, don't think you are the worst or there's no hope for you, far from it. You're, you're walking in a long line of people who have experienced the grace of Jesus Christ. And there's something unique about this father's unbelief. You see, his unbelief is repentant. He, he makes a statement of unbelief, but in essence, it is truly a statement of faith. Help me with my unbelief. He's asking Jesus to help him. It's a statement of belief. It's different from what we found when Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth in Mark chapter 6. You remember the chilly reception he got there? Those people wanted nothing to do with him. They just reject him outright. Or it's different from the unbelief expressed by teachers of the law, Pharisees, the people who are plotting against Jesus for his death. It's not the same. These people have rejected him outright, want nothing to do with him. This man is different. He's responded with a statement of faith in Jesus. So if you struggle with doubt, would you follow this father's example and ask Jesus to help you with your unbelief? If you're considering the claims of Jesus and struggling to believe, would you ask him in prayer, ask him, Jesus, help me with my unbelief? If you're a believer who has doubts rising, would you ask Jesus to help you with your unbelief? And after you've prayed, would you just simply open your Bible and let Jesus speak into your life? Let him help you with your unbelief in this way. In Mark chapter 1 verse 15, Jesus says, The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. There's help for doubting people. Mark chapter 4, verse 40, he asks his fearful disciples, Why are you so afraid? There's no need for that fear when Jesus is present. Mark chapter 5, verse 36, he tells Jairus, the synagogue ruler, Don't be afraid, just believe. Here in Mark chapter 9, verse 23, he says to this father, everything is possible for him who believes. Do not let doubts fester unaddressed. Do not let that unbelief linger there without carrying it to Jesus and saying, you've got to help me with this. If I could do it, it would be done already, but guess what? I can't. I'm not going to be able to. I need you to help me with this. Let that be your prayer. Faith is attacked by evil. Faith is hindered by doubt. Quickly, finally, faith grows in the grace of Jesus. Grace grows in the faith, faith, excuse me, faith grows in the grace of Jesus. So in the last part of our passage here, Jesus now turns his attention to this evil spirit and he commands the spirit to leave. No big show, no shining light, no magic dance, no magic wand, no magic words. Jesus just speaks. And the Spirit obeys. The Spirit leaves the boy. And then I love the scene we have in verse 27. It says, Jesus took the boy by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. Such different views of Jesus here. One, we have this incredible view of his power, his omnipotence, his spiritual authority in Jesus, casting out the demon, and then on the other hand, we have a picture of his incredible gentleness and tenderness as he helps the little boy up to his feet. This deliverance story is grace to everyone involved. It's grace to the boy who was afflicted. It's interesting to me that no one in the Gospels who's under spiritual attack like this, no one asks for help. Jesus doesn't deliver people because they express faith in the midst of their spiritual attack. Not of this sort. It's really interesting. I don't know fully what all it means. I just know that here's this incredible picture of the grace of Jesus Christ to deliver people who are under such attack that they have no ability in and of themselves to express faith or to even ask for help. But rather, it seems to be the, the faith of the father in this story that leads to the deliverance of the child. Amazing picture of grace from Jesus to the boy. This story is a picture of grace to the father, the father who struggles with unbelief. Well, Jesus shows him what's possible for the one who believes, and certainly a healed son helped this father with his unbelief. The story is grace to the disciples. Right? Their failure in this scene is an important moment. They're taught that their power is not in some prayer formula, but their power is in a faith relationship with God. But Jesus doesn't stop here with his demonstration of grace. He wants his disciples to believe, to understand. And so the story continues as they go on and they're traveling to their next location. Verse 30 tells us they left that place and passed through Galilee And Jesus didn't want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of man. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So look, if you think casting out this evil spirit is an impressive act of grace, it's just a tiny appetizer before the full meal, the great banquet of redemption. This is just a small glimpse into what is to come. But what is to come is of a different degree. Evil is... Conquered, finally, once and for all, not with the word of Jesus, but with the blood of Jesus. When he lays down his life, gives himself as the sacrifice for our sin, and he hangs on that cross because of the rebellion you and I have committed against a holy, holy, holy God. Jesus, in all of his grace, with none of us asking him to do it, none of us admitting our sin, none of us acknowledging that we need salvation, while we were still sinners... He dies for us. He goes to the cross. And if he's still dead, we're wasting our time today. But three days later, he rose from the dead. And every promise from him is true, including the promise to save all those who put their faith in him. Jesus gives incredible grace to sinful people like us, and that's what awakens faith for our salvation Jesus acts in grace and power and love for the sake of his struggling children. So what have we learned about faith today? We've learned that faith is under attack by an evil enemy. We've learned that our faith is hindered by doubt and unbelief. We've also learned that Jesus is our great helper, and his help supremely comes through his death and resurrection. And I asked you at the beginning of the sermon, how do you think Jesus will respond to all of these non-believers and weak believers that surround Him? We might expect Jesus to be a bit more like us. We might expect more grit from Jesus. But instead, what do we get? Grace upon grace upon grace. He responds with such grace and grace and power and a promise to save are you a doubter are you a questioner are you an investigator are you a believing unbeliever how does jesus respond to you with the same grace and power and promise to save the most important question you will face and the entirety of your life, is this. What will I do with Jesus? What will you do with the one who is fully God and fully man, the one who is full of grace for doubters, the one who has power unmatched, the one who has all spiritual authority, the one who laid down his life and rose again? What will you do with Jesus? Let your answer be believe. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your Word to us today, and I'm grateful for what we learn in a story that in many ways is really troubling. But in the face of the troubling nature of some of these details, we see You acting on behalf of Your afflicted child, You moving in grace, acting for our deliverance. And you do that supremely at the cross. Father, thank you for your grace unmerited, for your abundant love to us. Thank you, Father, for your character. You are not obligated to us in any way, and yet you have chosen to descend all the way to death on a cross for the sake of our salvation. And so I ask this morning, God, help us with our unbelief you who have done everything for our salvation you who have revealed yourself we haven't found you god you found us god we need your help again today help us with our unbelief for my friends in here god you you know their names those who have been struggling to believe those who have been investigating the words of christ and the life of christ and are trying to understand what it all means Lord, today, help them with their unbelief. Let them see the great price that was paid for them, how loved they are by you. And I pray that you would draw them in faith for their salvation today. Awaken that faith in them. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who also struggle with unbelief, the doubts that come through all kinds of conflict and situations and sin and struggles. Lord, help us, sanctify us. Let us set our eyes on Jesus. Let us strive not just to have empty prayer lives, formulaic religion, but God, let us be the kind of people who walk in faith, who trust you completely. Father, I ask for help and strength, especially for those who have been hurt by the church. Such deep wounds and complicated situations. Lord, let these sweet Friends, come to Jesus to find their healing and their hope and their strength for this next step in Him. Father, we need you. Help us now with our unbelief. In place of doubt, give us sureness, confidence, assurance in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.